Welcome to Seed Money, Monsanto's past and our food future. Brought to you by the History Department, the Clio Society, the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University, and by the Bexley Public Library. My name is Nick Breidfogel, and I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching. And I'll be your host and moderator today. Thank you for joining us. Monsanto, a St. Louis chemical firm that became the world's largest maker of genetically engineered seeds, merged with German pharma biotech giant Bayer in 2018. But Monsanto's Roundup Ready seeds introduced 25 years ago are still reshaping the farms that feed us. Today, our speaker, Bart Elmore, will examine Monsanto's astounding evolution from a scrappy chemical startup to a global agribusiness powerhouse. Monsanto used seed money derived from toxic products, including PCBs and Agent Orange, to build an agricultural empire, promising endless bounty through its genetically engineered technology. Let's take a moment to get to know our speaker. Bart Elmore studies the past to understand how we can live more sustainably on this planet. A native of, of Atlanta, Georgia, Bart is Associate Professor of Environmental History and a core member of the Sustainability Institute at The Ohio State University. He's the author of Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism, a global ecological history of the world's biggest soft drink brand from his hometown. From 2016 to 2018, he was a Carnegie Fellow at the New America Foundation of Washington, DC. He finished his second book, Seed Money, uh, which we'll talk about today in October of 2021, and is currently completing a book tentatively entitled Country Capitalism, the American South and Global Ecological Change. With that introduction, let me mention the plan. Professor Elmore will open with a presentation on the history of Monsanto and our food, and then he'll take your questions and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen uh, on Zoom. And we'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can. We had several questions come in uh, during registration. And we'll start with those first, and then we'll move on uh, to others from the audience today. So without further ado, uh, let me pass you over to Professor Bart Elmore, who will take us on an exploration of seed money, Monsanto's past and our food future. Over to you, Professor Elmore. Thank you, thank you. I'm gonna pull up the slides here and thanks Nick and Jade for those a fantastic introduction and what a pleasure to see everyone. Uh, thank you for coming out to hear this talk. This is the best part about writing a book is getting to connect with people all across the country and the globe and, and, and doing these book tour talks. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me today. This was a labor of love, took about eight, years to finish this book. Um, I traveled all over the place to Vietnam, Brazil, all across the country uh, to met with some of the top weed scientists, agricultural scientists in the world. And, uh, and I'm just so happy to be here to present this to you all this afternoon. So this is the book, uh, Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future just came out in October. And really what the book does is it tries to tell a story about the history and rise of this firm that Nick so eloquently described, a, a firm that started out as a chemical company in St. Louis in 1901, and that became the largest seller of genetically engineered seeds in the world by the end of the 20th century, and having such a huge influence on our food system. For me, it was a firm I really wanted to get to know, and that was in part because I'd written the history of Coca-Cola, and looked into the environmental history of the of this firm Coca-Cola and looked at each ingredient that goes into that soft drink beverage. And it was when I was writing the story of caffeine for Coca-Cola that I came across this history of Monsanto that I really wanted to know more about. I traveled to St. Louis at the time I was writing a dissertation about the history of Coca-Cola and uh, was, was trying to figure out how they got their caffeine, found out it was Monsanto that was producing caffeine for Coca-Cola. And I went to St. Louis and was given permission by the company to access their corporate records, which is one of the things I wanted to point out today is that the story you see here comes in part from access to the corporate records um, that are housed in St. Louis. 
And I think it's a story that really wowed me as I went through this journey. I, I really didn't anticipate uh, all the twists and turns. And so I'm going to take you on some of those twists and turns today as we talk about this. Uh, I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes here. My plan is just, just give you a brief outline of what how this company came to be, its early roots, talk a little bit about its, its pre-agricultural history, and then focus on the story of Roundup Ready technology, this genetically engineered seed suite that they created in the 1990s that I think revolutionized the way that we grow food, the way that we, we farm, and uh, not only here in the United States, but in other parts of the world. So that's the journey we'll have and, and then have a lot of time for Q&A, and I'm looking forward to that as well. So let's dive into the story here of Monsanto. And I think there's no better place to start than with John Queenie, who you see seated here with his two children, um, Edgar and Olguida, his daughter on his lap. His wife is standing over him. And I think maybe that's the first point of uh, history here that's worth mentioning. His wife is named Olga Monsanto. She's of Spanish ancestry. And he, of course, names his company that he's going to create in 1901 Monsanto after his wife. And at first, I wasn't quite sure why he did this. I mean, it's obvious on the one hand, he's doing this because he wants to honor his, uh, his wife. And, and, and that seems like an appropriate thing to do. But he is John Queenie. Why not call the company the Queenie Chemical Company in St. Louis? And it turns out there's a document I found in the corporate records that's pretty, pretty unique. And what that document showed was that Queenie did not want to name his company the Queenie Chemical Company, in part because he was moonlighting when he started this, this company. And he was working for another drug company, a company selling chemicals called the Myers Brothers uh, Drug Company. And he was trying to get this company started in the evenings uh, as a kind of moonlighting project. And that document makes very clear that one of the things he tried wanted to avoid is this uh, you know, any kind of confusion. Is, is John Queenie part of Myers Brothers? Is it different? By naming it Monsanto, it might help with that, that confusion, uh, naming it after his wife. And so that's why it's called the Monsanto Chemical Works and ultimately the Monsanto Company. And it started in 1901. I love this picture because I am now a parent too, and I have kids around the same age. Um, they are all under five at this point. And Queenie, you can see, is you know, maybe not looking so happy. He's, he's had some kind of rough encounters in recent years in his life. He had tried to start a chemical company in the late 19th century, but it had burned down. And he'd lost, essentially, his life savings. So imagine having these two kids under the age of five. You've tried to start a business. He's now 40 years of age. And remember, life expectancy in the early 1900s at this point is maybe 46 or 47 years of age. So he's, he's well up in age and, you know, he's struggling. He's trying to get this thing started. And I think that's the best way to think about Monsanto at the beginning. It's a firm that's very much a scrappy startup. It's trying to outcompete these massive German chemical companies that are the kind of lions of the day. Europe is where most of these uh, chemicals that are ultimately coming from things like coal tar and then later oil, uh, petrochemical feedstocks. It's, it's companies like Bayer in Germany or Sandoz in Switzerland that are running and controlling the chemical market. They are the giants, they are in control. And that is one of the ideas behind Monsanto in 1901. The idea is to try and liberate the American market from the stranglehold of these European chemical concerns. Queenie wants to be an American-made chemical firm that can make chemicals in the United States that are, at this time, being imported from overseas. And of course, I think the great irony of this story is that in 2018, Bayer, this massive German pharmaceutical and life sciences company, is going to buy Monsanto. There's a kind of tragedy to the story that the whole point of Monsanto was to try and break free of the stranglehold control of these big businesses like Bayer. And yet in the end of the book, you'll see that Bayer ends up buying Monsanto. I wonder how Queenie would feel, uh, you know, over 100 years later, uh, knowing that history. But he doesn't live to see that. He, uh, he would live to, into the 1920s, but 
and and really get this business off the ground. Um, again, trying to outcompete these chemical firms overseas. And it's really important to point out that World War I was the critical moment that allowed Queenie to expand in the 19-teens. When we have our chemical supplies being cut off from those German suppliers overseas that we're now at war with, companies like Monsanto are allowed to expand and explode in terms of their sales. War, in other words, is a big part of the story. And World War I uh, is probably one of the most important stops. But so too is another chemical, uh, another company, uh, or, or store, uh, uh, part of the story, which is a company called Coca-Cola. Because in those early years before World War I, what Monsanto was producing was essentially saccharin, an artificial sweetener in the early, early years. That was the only thing they were producing, an artificial sweetener that it sold to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola bought its entire stock of saccharin, Monsanto's entire production, to sweeten their beverages. And the reason they did it was because it was cheaper to sweeten beverages with this artificial sweetener than it was to buy sugar uh, and to sweeten with sugar cane, sugar that comes from sugar cane. And so Coca-Cola was central to this story. In fact, Monsanto's second major product was caffeine, which, uh, the company sold to Coca-Cola. It actually made caffeine, Monsanto did, from the waste tea leaves of the tea industry. So damaged or dirty tea leaves that were left on the floor of tea exchanges that were kind of the garbage of the tea industry. Monsanto would sweep up that waste product that was cheap and process out the caffeine and sell that to Coca-Cola. It was such a critical relationship that you can even see here on their company website. They say that without Coca-Cola, there would be no Monsanto. It was, it was so critical to the, to the beginnings of the firm. Um, and you can see this early period, there's no pesticides or insecticides. The firm is not really focused on that. It's focused on what it calls specialty chemicals for the soft drink industry. And in fact, they had to wait for the payments that came from Coca-Cola to pay their workers. That's how significant that contract was. And so we start with saccharin, but of course, over the course of their history, Monsanto would then diversify into a diverse array of compounds. Many of these compounds were made from coal tar, the byproduct of turning coal into coke. Uh, it's this kind of the impurities that are left over, this black syrupy tar that you could find these carbon-based compounds in and turn it into all sorts of chemicals. By the 20s, uh, the firm is starting to turn to oil. Uh, specifically oil refining companies that have this waste product that's left over after refining oil into gasoline and other fuels that they can turn into all these other compounds that you see here, compounds like polychlorinated biphenols, an insulating material that was used in almost everything uh, beginning in the 1920s and onwards. Um, they also got into DDT in the 1940s and into agricultural chemicals in the post-war period herbicides like Agent Orange, which was used in the Vietnam War as a defoliant to try and expose jungle environments, uh, enemy combatants hiding in jungle environments. In fact, Monsanto was the largest producer of Agent Orange by volume during the Vietnam War. We think of Dow Chemical Company as one of the producers of this compound, but Monsanto was actually one of the biggest producers. So in this book, we, we follow this journey of this firm that started as, as this scrappy startup by a guy who's down on his luck with two kids who's just trying to moonlight to get this business up and running. But then it explodes into producing all these compounds that become critical to the economy. And I want to note that Queenie, again, did not have a background in chemistry. John Queenie, the guy who starts this company, didn't even have a high school diploma. In fact, in the 1920s, when he's being quizzed by a congressman about the chemicals that he's putting out into the marketplace, he actually pauses the uh, congressman and says, excuse me, sir, he says, you're getting into chemistry on which matter I am rather weak. And here, of course, is this baron of this massive chemical company that's going to affect so many different lives, admitting in the 1920s, that he doesn't really even understand some of the basic chemistry of some of the compounds that he's producing. In fact, he has to import uh, chemists from Switzerland and other parts of Europe to actually make the compounds that he's going to sell uh, internationally. 
by the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, and in the 20s, he hands off the company to his son, Edgar Queenie, who radically expands the business. They produce all these different compounds, not just specialty chemicals for the soft drink industry, but these things like polychlorinated biphenols, DDT and Agent Orange. I can't go into all these stories. The book does, and it's a really wild journey to, to tell the story of how they got into DDT, which they branded Santo Ban. Uh, that was Monsanto's brand of DDT and how they got into Agent Orange. But along the way, I found some pretty wild documents and either in corporate archives or as a result of litigation against the firm. One of the documents I wanted to show you uh, came out of the chemical industry archives that I used to write this book. This is a document that shows, uh, it's a confidential internal document that Monsanto executives were writing when they were debating what to do about polychlorinated biphenols in the 1960s. By then it was clear that polychlorinated biphenols were an extremely toxic compound. Um, these PCBs were in everything. I mean, we're talking about in receipt paper. It was in the paint that lined pools. It was in the paint that lined silos that held our food. It was in the cardboard that held cereal that we ate in the mornings. It was in artificial Christmas trees. It was in, most importantly, uh, transformers and electrical equipment. It was, again, this kind of fire retardant material that ended up in everything. And Monsanto was the only producer of PCBs in the United States, which made it extremely liable in the 60s when it becomes clear that this was an exceptionally toxic compound. And so in 1969, the company is trying to figure out what to do about this incredibly profitable product line. And you can see here at the top, they're saying internally in this confidential meeting, the subject is snowballing. Where do we go from here? And they discussed alternatives in this meeting, one of which, of course, was the one that you might think of. Well, maybe we should stop producing PCBs, given how toxic the material is. We should, quote, go out of the business. But that wasn't the only alternative they considered in this meeting. You'll see point two here in the document says, that one of the things we might want to do with this toxic compound is just, quote, sell the hell out of them as long as we can and do nothing else. And note that the person had to go back and put a little note here to add the hell out of them in that. And also you see here customers like General Electric and other customers weren't even told about the internal studies that showed some of these problems with these compounds. What do we tell our customers and when do we tell them, right? Um, these were the types of documents I was able to uncover or and reveal in this book that I think get to this story that I think a lot of people know about Monsanto, the story of a company that at times made some pretty unethical decisions in terms of selling products that they knew were toxic, even though internally their studies were showing that there were real problems with them. And you're going to see, you see those stories in this book. But I also want to stress something that I really wanted to try my best in the story not just to tell a story of evil people doing evil things, right? I think this was also a story that you see in this book at times, people who really have good intentions, scientists who come in the firm, who are creating new compounds that they believe can save the world. And, and there's also stories in this, in this book of technologies that had great promise, but that backfire in ways. And I actually think that human story of sometimes how good people inside these firms might be involved in, in, in technologies or processes that have these unintended consequences was really important for me to tell. Um, and I tried to tell those human stories, tell the human, uh, you know, a story that involved both the good and the bad throughout this. But you can see there were documents like this as well that I didn't shy away from pointing out where unethical decisions were made or even unethical discussions in so many ways about what to do about such a toxic compound as PCBs. So as I said, you know, Monsanto gets into agricultural chemicals in the 1940s, 50s and 60s um, and, and gets into it in a big way. It becomes a major producer of herbicides and insecticides. 245T, one of the compounds that's in Agent Orange, they were one of the largest producers of this chemical in the United States. But of course, by the end of the 60s, we learned that a lot of these early herbicides are quite toxic. And one of the things the company wants to do is find an environmentally friendly herbicide that it can sell on a large market after uh, the Vietnam War. 
and into the 1970s. And one of those compounds that they turn to um, in this period is um, a compound called Roundup. Well, it's branded Roundup, but it's actually called glyphosate, the active ingredient glyphosate. The herbicidal properties of this compound are found and discovered in 1970. This becomes commercialized as a herbicide to be used by farmers and by gardeners and by pretty much everyone in the economy um, by the mid-1970s. Roundup becomes the first billion-dollar herbicide in history. It becomes a blockbuster product for Monsanto, in part because it's such a broad-spectrum weed killer. It's so effective at killing weeds. And through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, this becomes a really critical product. Most of us know Roundup is the most widely used herbicide used today. And of course, the controversy surrounding it after the World Health Organization in 2015 issued an announcement saying that it had found in a meta-analysis that Roundup was a probable human carcinogen. And there's been a debate about that. And the EPA has done its own studies and said it does not see that link. But, but when that happened in 2015, Roundup became this massive controversial product in some ways and led to a series of litigation, which we can talk about in the Q&A. Um, but the interesting thing I want to point out in terms of the history of all of this that I didn't expect to find is that one of the reasons that glyphosate, specifically a phosphate-based, a phosphorus, that's why glyphosate, phosphorus-based compound becomes the kind of target for the firm, is in part because of another product the company had been selling. Monsanto had created all detergent that it used uh, and sold on a wide scale in the 1950s and into the 1960s. But all detergent by the 1960s was coming under fire. One of the builders in all is a phosphate-based compound. And phosphate-based detergents were being targeted by regulators because it was argued that phosphate-based detergents were increasing eutrophication, algae blooms in the Great Lakes and other areas, contributing to water pollution uh, in, in many parts of the country. And so there was a move in many states to ban the sale of phosphate-based detergents. And this is precisely the moment that Monsanto begins playing with finding new compounds that it can use its phosphate, that it's mining, by the way, out in Southeast Idaho, at great expense and at great capital cost to the firm. And they're trying to figure out what do we do with all this phosphate that we're not gonna be able to put into the detergents. And it turns out that Roundup becomes, as one executive put it, a strategic exit from that phosphate-based detergent business. No longer are you gonna put that phosphate into your detergents, you can now channel it towards Roundup. And this product becomes, again, an extremely important product for the firm going in to the 1970s, 80s, and into the 90s. But there's a problem. And I didn't expect to see this until I got deep into the corporate records. But the big problem for the company was this issue with the fact that most of Monsanto's products, including Roundup, uh, ultimately were derived from finite fossil fuels, specifically oil. And you can see this from their 1980 annual report. The company said, today, more than 80% of our products depend on hydrocarbons derived from oil and gas. And many people watching today may have lived through that period and know why that would be a problem in 1980. Of course, the massive energy crisis has hit the country and ultimately the globe. The OPEC oil embargo of 73 and 74. And of course, the Middle East uh, conflicts in 79 that spiked oil prices. Monsanto was scared. What do we do? Almost everything we make comes from the byproducts of the oil industry and oil prices are skyrocketing. And not only that, but big oil majors like Exxon, Chevron, other companies are now vertically integrating into producing their own chemicals in-house instead of giving us their waste products to produce chemicals at cheap. This was a real problem for Monsanto. And this is why this company that made chemicals for so long pivots and begins trying to invest in biotechnology. It was the energy crisis in so many ways that pushed Monsanto into this kind of more profitable 
uh, product line that they were really interested in. And biotechnology looked really promising at the time. There was a great deal of investment in pharmaceuticals, and there was tremendous new technologies and genetic engineering coming online. This seemed like a growth area for the firm. And so they pivoted, starting to unload a lot of the chemicals they were producing and getting into producing uh, genetically engineered crops. This, one's, this is going to be a big part of their, uh, their portfolio in the future. They're not going to give up on every chemical, especially chemicals like Roundup that are making them about a billion dollars by, uh, by the end of the 1980s annually, a huge profitable line for the firm, making something like 30% of their profits by 1990. Huge, huge, huge uh, important chemical that they're going to hang on to. But they're going to start pivoting into trying to become a biotech company, and specifically trying to become a seed company that can produce genetically engineered crops, um, specifically two types of crops. Roundup ready crops that can tolerate heavy spraying of Roundup. So these are crops that are genetically engineered to like corn, cotton, uh, and soybeans that are genetically engineered to be able to be sprayed with Roundup throughout the growing season. And the crops will survive, it'll kill all the weeds, but the crops will be able to tolerate that spraying of Roundup. That's one series of, of uh, crops they try and create. And the second series of crops they try and create are BT crops crops that can produce their own insecticide uh, known as BT that can keep pests at bay. If we can genetically engineer these crops to have this trait that can produce this insecticide, it, it's almost like crops are producing their own insecticide uh, and, and fending off pests as a result. That transition began in the 1980s and it began in earnest to develop these crops. And the point I wanna make is that that was in part inspired by that energy crisis, by this concern that 80% of what they were producing were coming from chemical, uh, chemicals coming from the oil industry. And so you can see this. Monsanto was successful with creating Roundup Ready crops in 1996. We see this first commercialization of these genetically engineered crops, um, first in soybeans, and then cotton and, and corn. And you can see the adoption rates here of just how fast these crops were adopted by farmers. And it makes sense because these crops were incredibly incredibly, um, they were almost magical to farmers. Think about it. You can now just spray your crops during the growing season. During the growing season, once your crops have emerged and your crops will survive, but it'll keep your fields magically clean. It'll kill all the weeds. You, you couldn't do that before you genetically engineered crops to tolerate Roundup. And so you see this magical adoption of this technology with something like 90% of farmers uh, going in on this uh, for the major commodity crops uh, by the 20 teens. And we also see farmers adopting BT crop technology as well. Now at this time, the head of the company was a guy named Bob Shapiro. And I actually got to talk to Bob Shapiro when I was working on this book. And he believed in so many ways that this was going to be a positive revolution that would help out the environment and the planet. It would help us feed the world, but also reduce farmers' dependency on chemicals. In fact, in this Harvard Business Review article in 1997, he said that really what we are is like Microsoft. We're just selling genetic software in the form of these seeds that's going to allow farmers to reduce their herbicide usage. Um, we're going to be replacing stuff with information. We're going to make plants smarter so that farmers don't have to use as much herbicide on their, on their crops. Uh, and his point was all they need to use is glyphosate. They're not gonna have to use all these other chemicals to try and keep back weeds. Um, this, this was the argument at the time. This is gonna be good for farmers and this is gonna be good for the planet. And he also said that this is gonna radically increase our food production. Um, and we're gonna see this exponential growth and yield with this new genetic engineering technology. So I wanna end by talking about those two promises. Did they play out? Well, here's what the data shows. After genetically engineered Roundup Ready crops were introduced in 1996, the use of glyphosate exploded. It was already a popular herbicide by 1992. You can see here on the graph of the country, estimated use on agricultural land. But look by 2017, how much glyphosate is being used on farm country. You can even see Ohio here for those who are local. 
this was one of the consequences of that Roundup Ready revolution. Glyphosate was being used almost exclusively by farmers to beat back weeds during the growing season in the 1990s and early 2000s because they had crops that could tolerate Roundup. So you could spray it as much as you needed and glyphosate use exploded. And here's a fascinating chart I put together with a data scientist that shows what happens. Notice, look at glyphosate use. This is pounds per acre, and we're just looking at soybeans for some of the target states that were uh, big soybean producers. Notice 1992, you have some substantial amounts of glyphosate being used, but notice how much glyphosate is being used um, as we go into the early 2000s. It's replacing, and this is a dotted line here, all these other herbicides. Herbicides like 2,4-D, that goes back to the 1940s. Herbicides like dicamba, that goes back to the 1960s. And the argument was, these chemicals are old and they're more toxic. And Bob Shapiro was saying, look, we're, we're, we're creating an environmental good here. Look at the drop in our herbicide usage. And glyphosate, which at the time was argued as being a more environmentally friendly herbicide, is replacing these more toxic herbicides. This looks really good. But notice what happens. By the early 2000s, nature fights back. So much glyphosate is being used exclusively on farms that weeds begin to adapt resistance to glyphosate. And as a result, farmers are having to beat back those weeds that have developed resistance to glyphosate. They have to turn back to those older and more toxic herbicides to try and kill weeds that have developed resistance to glyphosate. So Bob Shapiro's promise was in part true, right? In the beginning, we do see this radical reduction in toxic herbicides being used, but over time, weed resistance develops because of the selection pressures put on that environment by glyphosate. And we see this rise in all other herbicides coming back. Uh, in recent years. If you want to look at it as a bar chart, you can see here's glyphosate and here's all other herbicides. And you can see that we're not using less herbicides today. We're using a lot more and not just of glyphosate, which explodes, but of all these older chemicals that go back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's an old chemistry that's being used to grow our food today. And that's one of the messages of this book, that the future of food, which is promised as being this new and radically, you know, uh, chemically um, reduced kind of futuristic type of agriculture actually looks like a very old agriculture, but we're using older and older chemicals and a lot more of them today. Now, I've got three more slides and, I, and I, I just, I know I'm a little bit over time, but I wanna see if I can get these slides in because they matter. One of the chemicals that we've seen come back in heavy use is a chemical called dicamba which was first commercialized in the 1960s. And dicamba, again, is being sprayed on crops in part because Monsanto has created a new series of seeds that make crops not only tolerant to Roundup, but makes crops tolerant to dicamba as well. So now you can spray your crops with not just Roundup throughout the growing season, you can spray it with Roundup and this chemical called dicamba. And these seeds are called extend seeds. And the reason you're doing that is because glyphosate is gonna kill a lot of weeds, but now there's a bunch of weeds that are tolerant to glyphosate. So dicamba will kill all of those weeds. It was supposed to be this fix to the Roundup resistant weed problem. But note this sticker. When these seeds were first introduced in 2015, the EPA told farmers that they could not spray dicamba on these dicamba tolerant seeds. And you might be saying, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why would farmers not be allowed to spray dicamba on seeds that have been genetically engineered to tolerate dicamba? And the reason was because the EPA was concerned about dicamba. At the time, the formulations that were on the market were volatile. If you sprayed dicamba in a hot temperature during the growing season, dicamba would vaporize. It would drift off target. So if you spray it in hot, hot temperatures, dicamba has a tendency to jump up in the air, as farmers will say, they call it jumping, and it'll drift off target and hit farmers nearby who may not have dicamba tolerant crops. It's a major problem. 
And even though Monsanto said in 2017 and 2018, we have a new dicamba formulation that doesn't vaporize, we have seen dicamba drift affecting farmers all across the country. It's become a massive problem with peach farmers, uh, vineyards, for example, being hit by dicamba. There's no such thing as a dicamba tolerant peach farm. There's no such thing as a dicamba tolerant vineyard. And it's become a huge problem. I sat in on this case, Bader Farms, which was a peach farmer filing suit against Monsanto in 2020, actually went to the trial. And I'll tell you, my jaw dropped when I saw the documents that were released in that trial. These are the last two images I'm going to show you, and then we can have a conversation. In that trial, in 2013, uh, a document was released. You can see it was listed as company confidential. It became Exhibit 22 in this case, in which Monsanto was coaching its sales team on how to sell dicamba tolerant seeds to farmers. And you can see here that there might be an issue. Maybe a farmer uh, doesn't have a resistance issue, doesn't have Roundup resistant or glyphosate resistant weeds. Um, how do we sell this seed to him, this new dicamba tolerant seed? And you can see here this kind of damning document. It says, you can sell it to the farmer by telling them it'll be protection from their neighbor, i.e. dicamba is going to be drifting all across the country. It's going to be vaporizing and volatilizing. And either you can buy our seeds and have protection from that drift or not. This was company confidential. This was not released to the public, but it was released in trial. I was sitting in the trial when this document was released. My jaw dropped when I saw it because it was a kind of admission of them knowing the problem before it was even released uh, into the market in 2015. This document was from 2013. Last slide. The emails chains that were released in that trial were equally damning. And it showed that, that people inside the company knew that dicamba would drift, knew that there was gonna be a massive problem when it came to dicamba tolerance around the country. And here you can see an email. This was uh, a person who worked inside the company on soybeans and cotton, as you can see here. And you can see how he even thought that pink sticker would never prevent farmers from spraying dicamba on their crops. They had just bought dicamba tolerant seeds. Of course they were gonna spray dicamba, even if there wasn't an approved formulation by the EPA. And look at this email right here. You'll see him say, um, it's great that all I get to work with a group of renegades that launch a technology without a label and think one sticker, that pink sticker is gonna keep us out of jail. If that was the case, another person on the team would be covered in stickers. This is what I mean by uh, the problems of the past are coming into the future. Dicamba, an old, old chemical in so many ways, is wreaking havoc out in farm country today. And it's a part of a larger history that I've tried to outline in this book, Seed Money. And um, I'm just so thankful that you gave me the time to share a little bit of that story with you today. I'll stop here. I know it's a lot to digest. I'm happy to go into any of it in the Q&A, but thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to our discussion. Bart, thank you so very much for that really remarkable and really interesting uh, talk today. Um, we have a lot of questions coming in uh, and uh, I will do my best to make it through as many uh, as I possibly can. Um, let me start with one uh, that you've touched on a fair amount here, which really has to do with um, how is it that people in, in, in the company could balance the kind of good intentions of what they were hoping to do with the kind of reality of these, these documents that you're showing us, where, where they knew that the good intentions weren't, weren't living up uh, to their hopes? How did, they, how did they balance that? And how do, you, how do you balance that in the book? Yeah, it was, you know, it was really interesting because I, I wanted to get to know people as, well, as, as much as I could inside the company. As I mentioned, I I, I talked with Bob Shapiro, who had been you know, the head of the company. I've talked to people that worked in, in lower levels of the firm. And um, I really feel fortunate to have had that opportunity to get those perspectives and to add them to the story, because I think they matter. Um, you know, what I saw during that process, I'll just tell you one story that comes to mind, um, Nick, was a person you'll meet in the book who reached out to me, um, who worked inside the company. Uh, I think it's apt to call him a whistleblower. And 
just listening to him, we went back and forth over a course of several months about whether he was going to go public with the information that he had. Um, and it was related to dicamba. It was related to what the story I just told you about kind of um, this dicamba drift problem. And just listening to this person, you could tell he was, he was a person who had joined this company in part because he believed in the mission of the firm, that he was going to be doing work that was going to be helping to feed billions of people, that it was going to be about developing new technologies that could help feed a hungry planet. And yet he got caught in this moment where he's seeing this problem that we kind of talked about at the end here. Um, and you could just feel the tension. I mean, we talked for months. I had lawyers at Norton. We had lawyers in Atlanta. We had lawyers in St. Louis. I asked him to get his own lawyer so that we could talk through all the ramifications of what would happen if he went public and violated, for example, his NDA, talking about what he wanted to talk about. And um, it was just a really personal experience. This person talked to me about what it would mean you know, if, if he were brought to trial. I mean, he had two kids that were going to school. Would they be able to, would he be able to pay for their college? Would, would his pension be affected? Um, and just, you could feel this culture within the corporation in a way, a culture of, of surveillance that, that he was clearly feeling. And you'll see in the book that I ultimately can't go public in the book with what he wanted to say. Um, so the story is actually about how he doesn't talk. Um, and I think that's a story that we see time and time again in the story, people inside the company who see something that they're not exactly um, okay with. And yet, what do they do? They've got families, they've got kids. How do you negotiate that? So I in the book to, to show that, that, that there's this kind of culture, a corporate culture of uh, keep this story inside, you know, um, and, and a culture of not releasing information that, that clearly should be in the public domain. For last thing I'll say on that is a document that says dicamba driftees, which is what Monsanto internally called farmers who were hit by drift. Um, they say this is an internal term only, right? Never use this outside the company. Same thing with PCBs. We now know this stuff is toxic. There's a document that says don't offer up information. So this culture of being an information gatekeeper and I think the tensions I was able to see of real people in the, trying to grapple with that, you see that tension in the book. And um, I hope it's a human story that people will connect with. Well, it seems like a tension we have in many of our, our kind of business community and, and, and government community in general is this sort of tension of how much, uh, how often to admit mistakes, uh, how much knowledge to make public. Uh, these, are, these are difficult things and, and, and issues kind of broadly in our society. Um, we have a bunch of questions about, um, kind of related to, uh, well, two questions that I think are connected. One is, um, the, were, were there, were there scientists inside Monsanto who understood, uh, the, uh, that resistance, uh, to, uh, you know, to glyphosate, for example, uh, would occur? I mean, did they understand? I mean, that's a, it's a relatively well-known kind of concept. They must have understood that this kind of thing would have happened. Um, and then kind of building off of that, we have a number of questions about, so what are the impacts of all of this? Uh, you know, is there an impact of the use of herbicides like dicamber or glyphosate, uh, glyphosate um, on kind of soil quality, on our ability long-term to be able to produce food? And what's the, what's the human impact on, uh, on human health of these kinds of, uh, these kinds of herbicides? Yeah, so on the first question, um, it's actually pretty startling. In the 90s, Monsanto, and you can see this in the book, and, if, and one of the things I've really worked hard in the book was to document everything I possibly could so that people that are interested in this would be able to go to the original sources. Um, so you'll see a study in the 1990s that Monsanto commissioned, which, by the way, was part of the strategy during these years, was to be out in front, to have the company funded studies be the kind of uh, studies that either the EPA was reviewing or, or that were in the kind of public domain to kind of control the conversation. And in the 90s, Monsanto produced a study that said that based on our experience with Roundup, which has been around since the 1970s, we don't think resistance is going to develop. And yet... 
weed scientists here at Ohio State, which I should say a big shout out to Ohio State, we had these amazing weed scientists that I got to travel along with uh, extension service uh, folks and go out and spend time with uh, farmers and to talk with them about the day-to-day experience, um, told me about what it was like in that period to be seeing these studies coming out with Monsanto saying, no, Roundup won't, won't develop resistance in weeds. And them in their own greenhouses, clearly seeing it. There's a story, for example, of a, a source who's in his greenhouse and Monsanto officials come in to badger him. He's finding this weed and he's saying, hey, look, I'm showing low level tolerance to Roundup in this, I think it was, uh, uh, I don't know if it was Pomeranth or what it was. Um, he said, I'm seeing low level resistance. And Monsanto said, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no resistance here. And this person said that he sent his graduate students out of his greenhouse and said, I quote, read this Monsanto rep, the riot act. He said, you don't come in here to Ohio State and tell people who've been doing this for 30, 40 years that we don't know what we're doing. You know, we're seeing this tolerance and it's happening. And it makes sense because look at the amount of Roundup we're using. I mean, farmers were literally using this almost exclusively. So a fifth grader could have predicted it and they were seeing it. At some point, Nick, it, it didn't matter. I mean, farmers, I mean, it just the cat's out of the bag. It's just not working as effectively. And so Monsanto had to pivot. And that's when they started saying, okay, we have the solution. These extend seeds. Or, and then there's like going to be a new series of seeds. So that's kind of how it played out. They fought it and they fought it aggressively, even here at Ohio State, um, to try and, and, and prevent that from, from, from being able to delay the game a little bit. Um, the second question was about effects. Um, you know, any number of effects. We could talk about the human health effects of exposure to glyphosate, which again, given the IARC study in 2015, I think raises a lot of questions about not just for low level, low dosage that potentially we are consuming of glyphosate in our food, which we know, of course, glyphosate is in the food system given the, the amount that's being used, but the acute exposure that many farmers, many laborers, farm laborers are experiencing in the field. I'll often read studies that will say, well, we don't need to worry as consumers because it's very low levels of glyphosate in our food. Of course, what does that mean over a long period of time when you're chronically exposed to a compound like that? But more importantly, do we care at all about the people who produce our food, you know, who are exposed to this chemical on such a high level? And back to your point about dicamba, it's not just that, it's also now you have dicamba, 2,4-D, Roundup, you have them all being sprayed in high concentrations together. What are the systemic effects of all that happening now uh, is, is another big question. But the bigger, bigger issue I'd say is the game is up on this kind of chemical-based intensive agriculture that goes back to the 1940s. You could argue it's a product of war that I think is showing that it's broken. How long can you play this game out? Okay, so we're starting to see dicamba tolerant weeds, right? Because you're spraying dicamba at such large volume. Well, maybe we'll create seeds that can tolerate five different herbicides, which is being pushed by, uh, by Bayer today with the EPA. That game has a short life cycle, you know? And I think what we're seeing in other words in this history is that the system is broken. And that we're going to have to think much harder, as you said, about soil health, about using cover crops, about going back to old time honored traditions that can and techniques that aren't going to rely so heavily on these chemical inputs, especially given that they're all, as I mentioned, based on petrochemicals at a time when we're trying to deal with climate change and get off fossil fuels. It seems like an imperative for our time that we read the history and see the warning signs and pivot now. And I think we are. Farmers are doing it. I'm actually optimistic, given what farmers are doing in fields today. Yeah, and, and this was a question that we had uh, from several uh, of, uh, of, a, of people in the audience was about, I mean, I think they, like you, are, are worried about the future of their children. Uh, and, and they're wondering, so how do we structure our agriculture now? How do we uh, ensure we make enough food, but in a, in a sustainable way that we can pass on to the next generation and to, to generations after that is, I mean, as you're saying, is part of the story, simply returning to some of the, the practices uh, from the past that we know work because they have worked for generations, uh, or are there other things that, that you would suggest now, having seen uh, 
seen all of this in action in terms of how, you know, what are farmers doing? What, what would you like to see them do to create that kind of sustainable agricultural future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, it probably will end up being a combination. I'm no Luddite. I should mention to folks, you know, when I wrote this book, I was a person who my first job was working with PCR machines, one of my early jobs with the CDC. You know, I was working with, one could argue with kind of uh, genetic manipulation and was very interested in the science of that. This was not meant ever to be a book that just uh, sees genetic engineering as, uh, as I put in the book, as evil in toto, you know. That, that I think there's probably going to be some combination of new technologies and interesting ideas. What I think was wrong with what we see in the last 25 years was the way it was deployed. This technology was clearly deployed in ways that didn't diminish our chemical dependency, but deepened it. And I think that has a lot to do with the business history of what was being sold, what was, at what was on the line, the profits, for example, that were driving it, and, and why it was so critical that the company pushed Roundup and maybe not other alternatives. And so I think that's part of the story is not being so beholden to one company like Monsanto or, or Bayer, because when you do, the product pipeline is such a tunnel vision for the, for the potential of what we can do out in agriculture that I think we end up in these cul-de-sacs. So I think it may be, there's some pretty cool technologies that are coming online. I think a lot of computer-based robotics that are emerging. If you spend time with farmers today, by the way, it feels like you're out in Silicon Valley. There's just so much tech out there. Some of it seems... Uh, you know, I have a lot of questions about, maybe it's a little bit fantastical, but on the other hand, maybe there might be some cool applications. But you're right. On the other hand, we also just got to go back to the past and say, there were ways to nurture our soil, to pay attention to how we grow food that I think um, we moved away from when it became so easy to do this kind of Roundup Ready system. Um, and I hope we go back to that in, in many ways. The other thing that I think is really, really critical, the biggest thing though, I think, is we, we, we became so obsessed with yield yield, yield, yield. It was all about yield. And instead of asking, well, what yield? What crops? I mean, right now we talk about yield, yield, yield with soybeans and corn. We got to produce more, got to produce more. I mean, think about it in a country that's actually trying to figure out what to do with its surplus. It's actually turning it into ethanol to, to, for cars, trying to figure out what to do with all this, right? I mean, one big thing is thinking about what we grow, not just trying to grow what we grow now more, but changing the types of things we're growing, mixing our agriculture. If we really wanna grow food, maybe we shouldn't grow as much of this material that actually doesn't go into food that humans eat. Um, and it, most of this is going into fodder for, for animals. So there's much more efficient ways to feed the world. And I think we gotta confront that yield message, which is something that industry promoted for so many years because it made a lot of money, um, but it might not be the best way to feed a hungry world. Um, tell us a little bit of what you think about uh, the, the kind of role or responsibility of, uh, of government regulatory uh, agencies in, in, this, uh, in this story. Um, yeah, what's their role and, and what should their role have been? Um, I'm, I'm inspired by that question to bring back up uh, the slide deck so I can show you um, a kind of jaw-dropping uh, thing here. Let me show if I can show it you here. I think the role is that we need to have much more aggressive action from agencies like the EPA, agencies that are responsible for making sure that we don't head down these cul-de-sacs that are, I think, harmful, not only for, in terms of producing fruit, but harmful to other farmers. Notice this. This is the EPA's website talking about dicamba. And this is December of 2021. The EPA published a report talking about dicamba-related incidents that cause damage to non-target crops. They say, despite the control measures implemented by the EPA in 2020, dicamba registration and, and that uh, decision to approve the use of dicamba, these incident reports showed little change in number, severity, or geographic extent of dicamba-related incidents when compared to the reports that the agency received before the 2020 control measures were required. Now, that's a mouthful. My point here is that currently, this is December, so it's basically right now, the EPA is admitting that nothing they're doing is fixing the problem. Farmers are getting hit by dicamba that have no defense against that system. And we can either let that be the norm or we as citizens can demand more of our regulatory agencies to say that's not how a food system should be. That's not liberation, that's not choice. Farmers should not be have to buy seeds to protect themselves. And in the case of peach farmers, there is no protection for them to buy. So I think that's the big thing is that, yes, I think the EPA is dragging its feet on some of these things and could do a much, much, much 
could do to do more to protect farmers who are getting harmed by this. And more importantly, we need to have firmer firewalls between the companies that are being regulated and the agencies doing the regulating. In this story, you see time and time again, the companies are producing the studies that are often used to green light the use of a chemical. That's just not the way it should be. Um, and I even filed a FOIA here with Ohio State Freedom of Information Act request, and you'll see it in the book, to look at how much money Monsanto was giving to ag programs here at Ohio State. And it was not surprising, it was a lot of money going specifically to study things like dicamba and its efficacy. Now, the integrity of the scientists I met here at Ohio State is unquestionable. I mean, they were amazing folks to work with, but we shouldn't live in a society where the people whose products are being regulated are paying for the studies that are gonna be used to regulate the product. That's just not a safe place to be. And it doesn't build, even if people have good integrity, it doesn't build confidence in the system. So giving our regulatory agencies more power and resources to do the job they're supposed to do, I think is, is a key message of the book. We've had a bunch of questions about kind of the international uh, ramifications uh, of all of this. Uh, and perhaps you could talk a little bit about, you know, what are the kind of uh, effects of, you know, the monopoly basically of GMO seeds and chemicals going to the kind of developing countries, what responsibility do organizations like the WTO um, hold for uh, supporting and promoting um, you know, trade in these kinds of toxic products, you know, World Bank, IMF, you know, Green Revolution, all of these sorts of things? Yeah. Um... I think it's an incredibly important story. I think, unfortunately, we haven't seen that's to reverse with the WTO and others, right? I mean, I think it's this system has been seen as a net good in so many ways for uh, communities like Brazil, for example, Argentina, places where this GMO technology has spread wild, wide, widely. And yet we see the same story of kind of corporate consolidation happening in these places. And in the book, you kind of see it as it's a really weird situation because oftentimes what's happening is we see the problems in the United States and then they're gonna be, you know, it's almost like we see them be exported to Brazil after we've already learned here in the United States what's problematic about it. Dicamba is a good example. Um, I went down to Brazil to study this, use the Ohio State Gateway, which is like, like the, an Ohio State embassy in Brazil. It was amazing to connect me to all these great farmers and scientists there. And if I was walking around talking to people, so many people, and they were just scared to death about the arrival of dicamba because they were watching what was happening in the United States with this volatile chemical causing all this havoc and damage to farmers who didn't want to have anything to do with dicamba. Think about it for an organic soybean farmer. You know, you're organic. You don't use chemicals. But if this stuff drifts onto your property, what protection do you have? And the word I kept hearing from people was, we're scared, we're scared. And it was weird. It was like living in history. We were seeing the history from the United States, how it played out, and then seeing this technology being proposed in a place. And I was literally writing about this kind of fear of what's going to happen if this comes to these places. Think about it. You're talking about the Cerrado. This is a place that's tropical. So you've got in Brazil, the middle of Brazil, so hot, hot, hot temperatures if it's going to be bad in Arkansas, what do you think it's going to be like there? So I think one of the things we see in this book, in other words, internationally, is just the failure of the lessons we've learned here, um, you know, learning those lessons and stopping them from being exported overseas to other places. Um, and, and, and I think we could do a lot better job of that in so many ways. Um, Bayer, of course, owns Monsanto now. And so there is inherently an international component to the story uh, in a way that, that, that there wasn't before, you know, with Saint, the headquarters being in St. Louis. Um, and I should just mention that Bayer has reached out since the book has come out. And uh, they've said that they've learned a lot from the book and that they're hopeful to change as a result of what they've read in the book. And we're in conversation. I don't know what that's going to look like, um, but I'm open to a conversation. And I think the real question is, what do we do internationally, uh, given what we've seen here in the United States? It's one of the things I'm going to press the company on as we have those conversations. 
Wonderful, thank you. Um, Bart, I know you would love to talk all day about this and I know probably many in the audience would, uh, would love to as well. Um, and, uh, but we've come to the end of our hour. And so I just wanted to, uh, first of all, um, thank you Bart so very much for taking the time to, uh, to enlighten us uh, with our kind of new understandings uh, today. I hope you will all join me in giving uh, Bart uh, a big round of applause for uh, his work today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and let me uh, just say a, a very big thank you to all of you for joining us today. Uh, we're really grateful uh, that, you, that you came. We're grateful for Professor Elmore for sharing uh, his expertise uh, and his passion uh, for history. Um, we did our best to get through the questions. My apologies to those who we didn't quite get to. Um, but you know how to reach out to Professor Elmore, he's easy to find. And I, I shared his, uh, his personal website uh, in answer to one of the questions. Um, so thank you. Uh, I'd also like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, particularly Jade Lack and Maddie Kerma for their help today. The History Department, the Harvey Goldberg Center uh, for Excellence in Teaching, the Clio Society, the Mexico Public Library, and the magazine Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective for their sponsorship. Uh, and once again, thank you our audience for your excellent questions and for your ongoing connection to Ohio State. Stay safe and healthy, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.